Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which... Three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast... Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the blessing of being able to join as your family here on this Sunday morning in this sweet little church. Just ask that you would be with Pastor Grant as he unravels and unpacks this beautiful passage and teaches us the meaning from way back when to, to, to current days and how we can apply this to our lives and what it means uh, to live in your, in your son's life. Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a seat and grab a copy of the scriptures and open up to 
the book of Daniel chapter 7, and I will try to make my phone work, and you'll probably be more successful with your task than I will with mine. Um, that is, what a beautiful prayer. That, that is the, the thing, isn't it? How do we make something like this wacky passage matter today? Does it matter today? Is this just something that is grounds, hey, we could, you know, go to Bible college and argue about this stuff, or is there anything for just common me and you? Does this have any impact on my day-to-day life? And I would say it has an incredible amount of impact on our day-to-day life before, and really didn't a corner turn as we're here in the book of Daniel? Like, Daniel's been like narratives, like stories, like about Nebuchadnezzar and whoever Belshazzar is and all this stuff. And, and it's been like the, a courtroom drama. Like it's, it's been like you could make a Netflix 10 episode um, thing about the, the comings and goings in the court of Babylon from this. And then you have Daniel 7 through 12 that is just completely different. It's a different style of literature. It's a different, when you read it, it it's, it's much less um, kind of grounded. It feels more uh, symbolic. And, and if we're going to figure out what's going on in this section, not just in this chapter, but really in this second half of Daniel, we need to dig a little bit. And I promise not to get too uh, Bible teachery. Uh, it's a, you know, it's sort of what, just what I do, but I'll try to go as easy on you as possible. This is apocalyptic literature. This is an apocalypse. In fact, maybe you could include parts of Zechariah in this, but in the Old Testament, the second half of Daniel is the clearest apocalyptic literature. This is the apocalypse of the Old Testament. And in fact, um, for those of you that kind of really enjoy um, the book of Revelation, if you will take the time and really dig into Daniel, you'll go, John ripped Daniel off, <laughs> like almost exclusively. John in the book of Revelation is very much like dipping into, capitalizing on really the book of Daniel was his vocabulary that he had been taught, that he had learned to talk about the uncertainty of the future in a way where there was confidence God was working. Daniel really was the language of the, the future times. We might say the end times. You guys know that word, eschatology? Eschatology is a study of the end times. So as they thought about what's coming next and is Rome going to win and all of that, well, they, the language they used was largely from the book of Daniel. So apocalyptic literature is this. It, a, an apocalypse is, is something that is something, a curtain is being pulled back. Something is being revealed. That's what's going on. It's a story about the future where there is an unveiling. So it's not exactly, uh, an apocalyptic literature is not exactly, um, here's a timeline, names and dates of what's going on in the future. Rather, it is an unveiling of what we can and should know as we live our lives um, today. So it tells a true story symbolically. And you go, wait a minute, is it true or is it symbolically? Well, there's a lot of things that can be told, true stories can be told using symbolic language. And we'll talk about that in a second. But this is 
when people are writing apocalyptic literature, you think of the book of Revelation, you think of Daniel, you think of parts of Zechariah. When these things are being written, they're using symbolic language, but that doesn't mean that it's fiction. You with me? We have to have more categories than true or fiction. Rather, this is symbolically told truth. You guys are excited already? I can tell. Well, what needs to be, what needs to be revealed? Like, you know, because we are this side of the Enlightenment, we care a lot about facts and dates. We want to know names, dates, places. Tell me exactly when. Tell me exactly where. Where I don't think Daniel thought as much like that. Rather, there were bigger questions like, who's going to win? Like, the first year, we'll talk about this as we go, but this happens, this, this vision comes to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Well, that means that Daniel has already had to endure like four Babylonian emperors. And not only that, but the, the word on the street, you know, on Daniel's news app, this Cyrus guy, the Persian, is really taking over large parts of the Mediterranean world. And not only that, there's powers in Egypt that are rising, and there really looks like Egypt and Persia are on the, res- on the brink of war. And if Persia and Egypt go at it, well, they're coming for Babylon next. Do you feel the uncertainty? Did, did I stress that? Do you want to turn off your computer right now, just as I said? Like, I just need to play cards with a friend. That's it. This is what's going on. So the question is much less academically. What is the timeline for future events? No, rather it's, are we going to be okay? Who wins? And not only that, but what should I do? How should I live my life? Should I take sword fighting lessons? I mean, probably you should take sword fighting. That'd just be awesome. Uh, but is, is that how I prepare? How do I live? When the future gets here, how will I be prepared for it? So this is what needs to be unveiled. So should we read this literally? Oh, in biblical scholarship over the last 30 years, that word literal, it has caused more fights. There is so much heat and not very much light in, in uh, arguments about over the word literal. Should we read the Bible literally? How about this? We should read it literarily. Now, I didn't make that up. Many great minds have said that before me, but I was an English major for one whole semester <laughs> at Cypress Community College. I failed every class because I didn't go. We should read poetry like it's poetry. We should read narrative like it's narrative. And we should read apocalyptic literature like it's apocalyptic literature. So let me give you an example. If I was to say, how would you understand this sentence literally? It is raining cats and dogs outside. Now, if we get to, uh, there's, there's rails on this bowling alley, right? You can get off the rails on either side. What do I literally mean? I mean, it's raining really hard. I did baseball games yesterday. We had lightning delay. Ah, 
where, where do we live? Um, and then we had a rain delay, and somebody actually said, I had already written these notes, and somebody goes, wow, it's, it's really coming down. There's cats and dogs out here. And I was like, I'm going to say that from the pulpit tomorrow. <laughs> what, what did we mean when we say it's raining cats and dogs? Literally, I mean, it's raining very hard. It's, there's a lot of water coming from the sky. But since I'm not that much of a doofus, I don't just say, there sure seems to be a lot of water coming from the sky. <laughs> say it's raining cats and dogs. So, we have some choices. We can either say, that's ridiculous. There's no way cats and dogs are really falling from the sky. This must be fictional. It's not trustworthy. Or we could go, you know, Grant's our pastor. He tells the truth. He loves us. There must be literal cats and dogs falling from the sky. We need to avoid those same kinds of mistakes as we read apocalyptic literature. Daniel is describing real people and events, but he's using figurative language. And I'll say something now that might be a little controversial. And I know some of you, when I say apocalyptic literature, eschatology, some of you go, mm-hmm, I've been waiting for this. Finally, Grant's talking about something important. And others of you are like, is it too late to go to another church today? <laughs> Truthfully, it's not. A lot of churches start at 11. You've got time if you need to do that. Um, But I'll say something that to some might be a a little bit controversial. It it certainly makes makes interpreting these passages a little more difficult. And, and this is huge to me, should engender more humility as we study this stuff. Daniel surely didn't know times and dates of what he saw either. In fact... At the end of this passage, Daniel is very confused. There's even some big theological ideas that we talk about all the time that just seem like, yes, Grant, you say that a lot, we know, but that would have been totally foreign to Daniel. Specifically, this idea of a now but not yet coming of the kingdom of God. The fact that is the kingdom of God here on earth now? Oh, not everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Say, say yes. That's right. Yeah. And it's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus looked at Pilate and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, you'd be in trouble because my followers would be fighting. So we live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, are we still looking forward to a time when the kingdom of God blooms, blossoms, comes in its fullness, and there is nothing but the kingdom of God. Yes, but now we live in this tension of this now, but not yet. I primarily identify as a Christian. That's Jesus is my king, which is why I'm not going to get super fired up or worried about whatever political stuff's going on. At the same time, I also know that God's calling me to minister to, love, connect to, pray for, evangelize the seaside, California, America, and the globe, right? I'm a member of those places too. So there's this tension now. That would have been totally foreign to Daniel. In fact, it was totally foreign to Jesus' disciples 550 years later. You remember that Jesus' disciples, as they're going to Jerusalem over and over, say things like, hey, is now when you're going to establish your kingdom on earth? 
Not only that, they were so convinced that Jesus was going to like be the new David and like wreck shop in a political way and win wars and all that, that they were arguing on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to go to the cross. They're having a fight about who can be second in command. So this idea was completely foreign. Now we look at the life we live, we look back, even in this passage that we're studying today, it is so clear that there is a now but not yet aspect to this. That there is a coming of the Messiah and then still time after that where the beasts are doing their thing. But from Daniel's perspective, that would have been nearly impossible to see. Even from James and John's perspective, that was almost impossible to see, even though Jesus told them. So Daniel isn't giving a timeline. There's no names and dates, um, although surely... The things closer to his time were easy to understand. That's one, just as I've been, you know, knee-deep in Daniel for the past several weeks, couple months now, the stuff that is closer in time to Daniel is more clearly in view. He can see Nebuchadnezzar very clearly. He can see Cyrus very, very clearly. He can even see Alexander the Great in a, in a little bit fuzzier way, but Greece is, you know, but then when it comes to Rome, it's like, and then there was just this other beast. It was different than the rest. He doesn't see it as clearly. Now, I don't think that's because it wasn't spiritual that the Holy Spirit didn't give him truth. I just think that that's the way God worked in Daniel's life. So, Daniel is told enough so he can have the understanding that God is trustworthy and victorious. And it almost sounds boring. It's almost like, in fact, I've had people tell me that as I approach apocalypse, as I approach prophecy, that I chicken out a little bit. And if I'm a chicken, then I apologize. You should, yeah, I knew. But I don't think the point of prophecy in the scripture is that we will know every time and date. Rather, I think the point of prophecy in the scripture is that we would have a deep understanding about the victory of Jesus. And that we would live our lives today with such surety in the victory of Jesus that we would be able to say, no matter what comes next, and I know there's trouble coming. I know clearly there's trouble coming, and I know clearly that Jesus is the victor. Have you ever taken your kids or any children, they don't have to be yours, someplace that they've never been before and tried to explain it to them? It's very difficult, right? So we're going to the Redwoods. So the, red, the trees are red? Well, I mean, they're brown, but they're ready, and they're, they're huge. Can you climb it to heaven? No, it's not. They're not good climbers. You know, and, it, you, and at some point, you just have to go, I've told you enough to trust me, and I've said this before to you. Sometimes you have to look at your kids and go, I've told you enough, get in the van. <laughs> and I think the point of prophecy in the Scripture is God is looking at us and saying, I've told you enough. Now get in the van. Follow me. Live like Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and is coming tomorrow. Like, live with the expectation that you could wake up from your sleep tonight in heaven. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Nothing to make me happier. But also live with the, the other understanding that you might live to 130 years old and need to be faithful in the middle of all of that living. God has told us enough. Follow him. He's victorious. 
you can trust him. This is the point of prophecy, in my humble opinion. So Daniel is told enough to know that God is trustworthy and victorious. But also, praise the Lord that also Daniel is told enough so generations to come, even including goofy pastors in Seaside in 2024, could still know that God is victorious and trustworthy. This is a story primarily about the near future in Daniel's time. And yet I am able to look at it and go, man, the world still works that way. And this is still a God I can trust. So instead of making a case for, again, uh, eschatology, if you're super fired up about it, I say, I've been saying this a lot in Daniel, if you are, uh, you know, uh, pre-tribulational, post-tribulational, mid-tribulational, amillennial, whatever, I just want you to know, deep in my heart, you're right. I agree with you, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. We could have a good conversation about it. I love Acme Coffee, if you want to meet me there. We'll grab our Bibles, and we'll just tear it up. And I say that for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons I say that is don't pretend your side doesn't have holes in it. Don't pretend there aren't weak spots to what you believe. There are no weak spots in John 3.16. There are no weak spots in the cross of Christ or the risen Savior. So I hold those things differently than I hold ideas about eschatology. So, if you're still with me, <laughs> let's dig in. First, you know, in our passage today, it might strike you that we get a little bit different view um, of Daniel. We haven't seen this piece of Daniel's life yet. You know, We've seen him as the dream interpreter. We've seen him as confident. Really, he has seemed almost superhuman. He has seemed unwavering, uncompromising in the middle of Babylon. If, if the book of Daniel stopped after chapter 6, you would think that guy never had a doubt. That guy never had any like wavering in his faith at all. Daniel was just like, I'll tell you again, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, and then Belshazzar, the writing's on the wall, pal, you're gone. And like, it just seemed like he was so like emotionally, spiritually tough. But that wasn't the case. Praise the Lord. Daniel's human. We're told that this vision happens in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So it's at least a few years after Nebuchadnezzar's reign. There's been at least a couple emperors or or kings since then, including Nabonidus, Belshazzar's dad. And apparently Daniel has fallen out of favor in the court. Remember, Belshazzar didn't know who he was. So while he was an important guy in the court for Nebuchadnezzar in the years that followed, he had lived a more secluded, ordinary life and to the point where the king didn't even know who he was. So a lot had changed in his life. And it might be natural for Daniel to be wondering what God is up to. You know, in the first half of the book of Daniel, he is the interpreter. In the second half of the book of Daniel, he's the dreamer. He's the one that's having the dreams. Not only is he the one that's having the dreams, he's the one that doesn't know what the dreams mean. He needs help interpreting it. It even ends, if you look at the the end of chapter 7, you kind of see 
Daniel go, well, here is the end of, end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. That's the same language that was used for Belshazzar at the writing on the wall. Daniel seems so superhuman, but guys, he's like me and you. There were times when his faith was rocked. There were times when the worries of the day made him go to the point where he didn't know what God was doing either. So it's a different view of Daniel, which I really appreciate, but the message seems kind of familiar. I hope that as we walk through the second half of Daniel, you'll notice, especially Daniel 7, that Daniel 7 has an awful lot in common with Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. There's four layers of the statue. How many freaky, terrifying beasts do we have? Four. Those four statues, those four layers of the statue, we were told were four kingdoms that were coming after and were sequential and would all have their time and would all have you know, their time of destruction or, or the end of the empire. Same thing is told to us about these, um, these beasts, that they will all be sequential. They'll come one after another. They'll all have their time of greatness, but they'll all have their time of end. In both of these, the statue and the beast, the fourth kingdom is a little different. In the, um, in the statue, you know, it was, it was a mixture. It was iron mixed with clay. It got different as it got down to the toes. It was just different than the, the head, shoulders, and knees. A little less clear what's going on there. In this, there's ten horns and... And, and uh, you know, this little horn that pops up and there's just less kind of understanding about what this could mean from Daniel's perspective. Also, and I think most importantly, you remember that when we were in chapter 2, we talked about the point of the statue is not the statue. The point of the statue is this rock that is divine, not cut with human hands, that destroys the whole statue, destroys Earthly kingdoms in general is bigger, better, eternal. Let's get our eyes off of the statue and onto the eternal rock of our salvation. And in this, it is the same. And I'll say this several times as we go, and it's where I'll leave you in a few minutes. Guys, there are going to be terrible beasts. There are going to be governments and leaders and selfish, powerful, usually men. And we can have our eyes and our concern and our worry on all of those. Or we can look at the Son of Man reigning in splendor who puts an end to all that. And we get to decide where our eyes are going to be. Are our, are our eyes on those layers of the statue? Are our eyes on the beasts running around? Or is our heart, our eyes, our attention on Christ? Who is our king? So while these two visions are not exactly the same, it seems silly to say that they don't have a lot to do with each other. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was about Nebuchadnezzar learning that even though his kingdom was awesome, it was temporary and, and uh, that it's God's kingdom that lasts forever. And now several years later, Daniel needs to be reassured of the same thing. Because it isn't just that Nebuchadnezzar needs to repent, Daniel needs to be reassured. Are you with me? Faithful Israel, Daniel, God's people faithful to him in exile need to be reassured that God is the conqueror. 
that God's kingdom is eternal. Now, Nebuchadnezzar needs to know this information so he gets his act together and repents. Daniel needs to know this so he'll hang on. And maybe that's still true. Maybe in the seats of power in our world, maybe even the seats of religious power, maybe it's some of the, the most you know, well-known and wealthiest and in the world's eyes most successful ministries that need to hear, your kingdom is temporary, pal. You need to get on board following the eternal one. And then there's some of us going, man, I feel like I'm following Jesus pretty faithfully and getting my butt kicked constantly. I feel like I've been alive for enough years to know that we were mad about something in the 70s, but then in the 80s we were mad about something else, and then the 90s it was something else, and now we're mad about other things, and there always seems to be something, some beast out there that we're mad at. And I've lived my whole life just going, the culture, the culture, the culture. I need to be reassured that God actually wins, that I can relax, that I can worship God. And know that he is victorious. So Nebuchadnezzar needs to repent. Daniel needs to be reassured. You know, as I think about it in, in my life, I go, I need both of those. I need to remember, Grant, this is not all about you, dummy. God's kingdom is eternal. You'll have your time. You'll go. I also need to be reassured. This stuff matters. Walking with Christ is important. And victorious in the end. All right, about the beasts. Let's talk about it. So um, here we go. First of all, in general, the beasts are from the sea. Okay, so they're from the sea, but then when the dream gets interpreted later in the chapter, it says these are four kingdoms of the earth. So here we go. The sea, it's called the Great Sea, and that is clearly the Mediterranean, and this is all about the Mediterranean world. You know, I've, I've heard people say, they're, you know, this is... Uh, um, it uses language about the whole earth, but this doesn't have anything to do with China or this doesn't have anything to do with uh, whatever's going on in the Americas or whatever. And you go, yeah, God's talking to Daniel. I don't know that it would be that helpful for God to tell Daniel what's going on in Hawaii. Rather, God is telling Daniel what's happening in his, in the whole world to Daniel, the Mediterranean world, North Africa, the Middle East, and the Mediterranean uh, Europe. So, this Mediterranean Sea, Daniel sees it in turmoil. This, the sea is almost always like a symbol of chaos. When the sea is blowing, you, there's a sense of, oh no, something is out of control. It's chaotic. It's not doesn't lack order, but it doesn't lack stability either. So all these beasts represent kingdoms that conquered the Mediterranean world um, and are chaotic. The chaos, chaos is like the engine that, that is breeding them. And Daniel sees the, these, you know, the, the ocean, the great sea, stirred up by the four winds of heaven. It's like coming from everywhere. You get this idea of just, have you ever seen when there's a severe windstorm out, out on the bay and it's just like terrifying? That's what's going on. But then later we're told that these are four beasts of the earth. So they represent four chaotic earthly kingdoms and their rulers. And again, to me, the biggest idea is that they are sequential 
They have their time, but they are not eternal. They have a time where they come to the end. So, the first beast, this lion with wings, is clearly a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon. The lion was the symbol of Babylon. This beast has eagle wings that that extend the range of this mighty predator, extend the power of this predator. It fits Babylon, this first kind of conqueror of, of that region. And then you remember that there came a time when Nebuchadnezzar became like one of the beasts. He went out and very much had his wings plucked off. He went out and then after he figured out that God was the eternal one, he was given the mind of a man. And that's exactly what happens to this first beast. He's, um, he's this apex predator. He's got range and power like an eagle, but he's grounded. His wings are plucked off. And when he's restored, it said he's given a human mind, which is very similar to the language earlier in the book of Daniel that says Nebuchadnezzar, his reason was restored to him. The second beast that comes after him, these are, these are supposed to be terrifying. I didn't put pictures up because I was like, artist renderings, ah, go ahead and make it up in your mind. Um, is this lopsided bear? All right, I was a youth pastor for 23 years. One of the most important questions you ever ask a youth group is two things. What's the biggest, toughest animal you could beat up with your bare hands? And mine's a, any dog. Um, uh, and... Um, or maybe a bobcat. Um, I weigh 250 pounds. I could land on that bobcat. It'd be. Um, but, the other, but the other is like, well, who could win in a fight? A polar bear or a velociraptor? And look, it's a polar bear without even a question. Like if you're a velociraptor person, I'm praying for you, but it's not true. Um, a bear is just this hugely terrifying thing. So the second beast is a lopsided bear. He's up on one thing, and he's coming at you, and he's got three ribs already in his mouth. Now, as Daniel is seeing this, terror has to be there. I don't think Daniel saw this and was like, I wonder what this represents. Rather, he was like, that's horrifying. So this lopsided bear with three ribs in its mouth almost certainly is uh, is a picture of the Medo-Persian empire, this dual empire. Persia was the stronger half, and so it's a little bigger. The three ribs, you know, I'll let you figure out what exactly those three ribs um, uh, are symbolizing. A lot of ink has been spilled, but to make it simple, Persia and the Medes have been on a rampage throughout the Middle East and have been um, you know, like winning wars for in kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. So these three ribs are the destruction that they have already conquered. And then they are told, go devour. So Cyrus, this Medo-Persian emperor, comes after Babylon. Beast three is almost certainly a picture of Alexander the Great. He's like a leopard with four heads and four wings. He's fast. And this was a picture of Alexander. Alexander was fast. Alexander conquered this stuff. Alexander conquered more of the known world than anybody else and died when he was 32. He was a vicious and brutal and four heads and four wings. Not only, not only super fast, but super smart. Saw everything. His head was on a swivel, baby. And then this fourth beast is Rome or something. 
This is where the books get written. You'll notice that it's not a specific animal. Daniel sees this less clearly. It's just a terrible beast. It's terrifying. It's strong. It has iron teeth. It devours. It stamps with his paws. This certainly reminds us of the fourth kingdom and the statue in chapter 2. So then it must be Rome. Rome is the one that comes after Greece. Rome is terrible and, and, um, and devours everything in its path. But not everybody agrees that the fourth kingdom is Rome. And I'll try to make this as painless as I can. But in the fourth of these kingdoms, there arises a ruler that's described as the little horn. We'll talk about this more next week. But many people associate this little horn with a man named Antiochus Epiphany, um, who was a Greek ruler that took over Judah in the second century. Um, you know, just so you get a little bit of Antiochus Epiphany's um, character, he believed that he was Zeus incarnate. Sure, he believed that he was, I'll say it slower this time, so for effect, he believed that he was Zeus incarnate. That's how he felt about himself. And it looks like this little horn might be him, especially considering, look as this vision gets interpreted in verse 23 and 24, then the king, this little horn, was exceedingly glad. Am I in the right? I'm in the wrong. That's Daniel 6. Uh, 23, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, let me see, I'm in the wrong spot, let's go down to 25, he shall speak the words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the laws that they shall be given into his hand for time and times and half a times. That really looks like Antiochus. Antiochus like destroyed the um, the temple, like desecrated the temple, made a statue of himself in the temple, had pagan sacrifices in the middle of the temple. But the problem is, and why, this, why we need to hold this stuff in an open hand, Antiochus wasn't part of that fourth. He wasn't part of Rome. He was part of Greece. So this is where some of the tension comes from. So some say it fits that way. The only problem is Antiochus wasn't Roman. He was Greek. And it sure seems... Like in our story today, that the Son of Man, that Jesus, will show up in the middle of the little horn's reign. So then it seems more like the fourth kingdom is Rome. But then it's more difficult to find an, a historical figure who fits this little horn ruler. Which makes some say, well, actually, this little horn is a future ruler, and the fourth kingdom began with Rome, but will find fulfillment in a future world empire with a leader who will do all the things that Daniel was expecting out of this one who is the antagonist for the saints. Phew. What say you? You know, I want to give you just that little glimpse into what this theological study looks like to let you know I hold this stuff in a pretty open hand. I joke when I say, whatever you think, I agree with you. But truthfully, I think in, in issues like this, it's more important to be students than it is to be experts. I hold this stuff in a pretty open hand. I enjoy studying it more than I enjoy arguing from my side. And I think that many times prophecy works in a surprising, unfolding way that we really can't predict before. 
And it very well may be that Daniel saw all this stuff that had to do with rulers and kingdoms in the ancient world, and we will see kingdoms like this continue to arise out of the earth until Jesus comes back, who will conquer with violence, who will be opposed and persecute the people of God. However, I think the point of the story is not that we would argue about whether or not the bear is Russia. And rather, the the point of the story is that we would get our eyes on the Son of Man. I promise it'll make sense when we're in heaven. And I promise you won't regret worshiping Christ with everything you've got today. And I think you will regret arguing with anger in your heart about eschatology (laughs) Um, with other brothers and sisters. I think if our eyes are on those beasts, if our eyes are on earthly rulers, we're missing the point of Daniel 7 entirely. And put yourself, here's the point, put yourself in Daniel's perspective. He sees terrifying beast after terrifying beast and power and violence and death and persecution. And then in verse 9, he says, as I looked, thrones were placed. If you were to talk to Daniel about this a week later, I don't think he would give you an incredible like description of each beast as much as he would say it was bad and then it was worse and then it was terrible, then it was gross, but then I saw God. And let me tell you about real power. All these like, wow, isn't a bear powerful? Well, not compared to the Son of Man. Well, shouldn't we be afraid of this government and that government and this war and this stuff and what's going to happen? No, we should have our eyes on the Son of Man. The point of Daniel 7 isn't world rulers and kingdoms. It's Jesus. It's the supremacy of God. So would you just, in your scriptures, read with me starting in verse 9? And let's let's just look and see what Daniel saw and see how it could elicit confidence in him and how it might be able to elicit confidence in us. Daniel said, and as I looked, thrones were placed. You get this impression of all of these beasts that are roaming around the, the Mediterranean world and conquering and off they go. But then he sees who's actually in charge sitting on a throne. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Clearly, God. And his clothing was white as snow, the symbol of purity, of singleness. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was fiery flames. And this in the Old Testament, this symbol of fire is always a symbol of the presence of God. You remember all the way back to the, the you know, tabernacle and the people of Israel being led by pillars of fire. But also the picture of fire in the Old Testament, we are told that God is a, a consuming fire, that 
It is about God's presence, but it's also about the truth that evil, that malice, that hatred, that, that sin will be consumed in the presence of God. That when our pride comes up against the purity of God, it is not an even fight. Fire is the presence of God, but fire is that which purifies. And in God's presence, there is pure love and power. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. Many thrones had wheels and this is what just was carrying it. Is the, the consuming fire of God. In fact, it wasn't just localized to the throne. Then it says, a stream of fire issued. It came out from before him. And thousands, uh, and the thousand thousands served him. Most commentators say that first. Thousand thousands is probably reference to the heavenly host. And then you have his earthly, the people of God. And, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. You see this picture of not only power, but of like a, a system that works, like a government that, that, that loves his people and that is working. And they're before him and there's worship and there's praise and there's peace. And the court sat in judgment. The, the royal court in heaven, and the books were opened. You know, this idea of the books being opened is like, it turns out whoever's got the biggest chariots in the Mediterranean is not how we're going to decide things. Rather, it's simply the power, the might, and the will of God. So the books are open. And verse 11 says, and I... I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So this earthly ruler, horns are a sign. We'll talk about this more next week, but horns are a sign of power. I think in our vernacular, you might use the word crown. Like a crown is like the, the picture of symbol of power and, um, and or maybe a scepter might make sense to us. And uh, that would be a, a horn. So this, this earthly ruler is just popping off at the mouth, just great words and talking loud. And it's even distracting in the throne room of God and then as I looked the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire see those the, the beasts of the earth might look terrifying to us but God's just not afraid on Wednesday night a few a couple weeks ago we looked at Psalm 2 why do why do the nations argue. Why, why do the nations make their plans and deceive? God's in heaven giggling at it. Ah, oh, how cute. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. See, these beasts look terrible, but they're short term. But their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. So Daniel's told like, yeah, God is victorious, but it will be a while before that works itself out. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man is just a, you know, a symbolic way to say a human. Now, I wonder if in Daniel's mind, this clearly is, maybe this is who God was talking about uh, all the way back um, at the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3 as uh, God uh, assures Eve that from her body will come one who will set things straight conquer the snake. 
this human future ruler. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Who's this going to be for? Is it going to be for, you know, just his, his, uh, his particular nation? No, that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom. You know, the governments, the powers of this world, and I don't think it's just governments, the, the you know, I think it's entertainment industry. I think it's, it's, uh, it, it's all the things, you know, as I think of like worldly things that have cropped up in, in my lifetime that have had like super negative impact, I think of like the, the, uh, proliferation of pornography. I think, of, I think about sports gambling. Look, you used to like have to have a bookie. You know what I mean? Like you had to know a guy in a corner and like whatever. And now you just like an app on your phone and people are losing their mortgages. It's evil. But it's temporary. All these things that seem to have so much power that we as Christians go, that's obviously bad and it seems so powerful. It does, but it's temporary. And Jesus reigns forever. His is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel, there's going to be beasts. Wait till you see Alexander the Great. It's going to be terrible but his time will end in this ancient of days and this son of man. You know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to go to Daniel after we spent almost three years in Luke um, was because in Luke, uh, Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself is as the son of man. Jesus saw himself as this person from Daniel 7, and we should too. All right, what are the big ideas? Four quick things. First of all, I promise quick. Four quick things. I think we're supposed to think about the power of earthly kingdoms. They're temporary. Uh, I, I spelled there wrong. Sorry about that. Um, they're temporary, but they are violent um, and futile. But they're not pretend. You're not wrong, Daniel. It's brutal. These things are terrifying. And in the now but not yet nature of the kingdom of God, this side of the cross, but also this side of the second coming, we maybe should have the understanding that there are going to be governments and corporations, and there are going to be trends, and there are going to be websites, and there are going to be local people, and there are going to be international people that have beastly character, and we'll grow in power, and we'll mourn it, and it'll look terrifying. But we're supposed to understand that God's power is greater, that all of these things come and go, and some of them won't come and go in our life. I'm only going to live 100 years, but they are temporary. We're also supposed to think, I think, about the suffering of the saints. So much of this prophecy has to do with um, this, you know, this, this little horn that is opposing. And one, I think one of the biggest 
how do you say, one of the biggest um, arguments for this little horn being somehow related to Rome is that there was so much persecution for the people of Jesus under uh, Roman authority. And this is normative. And we should not be afraid of the suffering of the saints, including us, but rather we should know that in the time of the beasts, in the time of worldly power, it's going to be part of it. There's going to be some tough times. But we should also think about the victory of the saints. That life in the kingdom of Jesus is full of love and joy and peace right now. It's another kind of problem I have with many arguments about the end of the world is there is this idea that we're going to be happy someday in heaven, that there's going to be peace someday in heaven, that there's going to be love and joy someday in heaven. And I go, that's not, why, that's not what Jesus' message was. Jesus' message was that there's love and joy and peace available for you right now that will extend eternally to heaven, but that starts right now. That it's not hang on and complain about the world until you die and finally get some rest. But rather learn to live in the kingdom of God right now in fellowship with one another that we can experience the sweetness and the joy and as we're in step with the Holy Spirit, experience spiritual gifts and grow in those that find their ultimate fulfillment in heaven but begin and grow and flourish right now. Daniel, you can be happy there in Babylon. So, when you wake up tomorrow, where is your attention? Where is your time? Where is your energy? Where is your hope going to be? What's the first thing you're going to grab in the morning? Is it going to be the, your news source? Is it going to be um, you know, your to-do list for the day? Or is it going to be a psalm? As you have challenges tomorrow, as the world rears its ugly head and, and, and there's, there's things that challenge you tomorrow, where are you going to turn? Are you going to identify with the challenge? Are you going to look at the beast and go, oh no? Or are you going to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith? I heard somebody this week talking about how it's very difficult for us to control the thoughts that come into our mind, like it can, you can get better at that, but that's very difficult. But it's not that hard for us to put thoughts in our mind. You can choose to fix your eyes on Christ. So I think the message of the day is there are beasts. There were beasts. There are beasts. And they're going to be beasts. You know, if, if this, if Daniel chapter 7 is only about things that happened in the past, I think we can look at it and go, yeah, that's still the way it works. There's still conqueror after conqueror. If Daniel 7 is about things that are going to happen in the future, I think we would say the same. Yep, there are conquerors. What's true? What's true is that love and joy and peace is available only in Christ. That was true in Daniel's time. It's true in ours. It's going to be true eternally. So, my friends, go in peace with your eyes not fixed 
on those that would stir chaos in the world, but on the one true conqueror, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, seated on a throne and able to give you love and joy and peace right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for preserving this story for us. Lord, thank you um, for the knowledge uh, of what happened around Daniel's time. Lord, I wish I had a timeline of names and dates and places and stuff for the future, but God, I am fully content to rest in you and your power. Lord, our hearts many times are stirred or, or anxious or not peaceful. Lord, would you teach us to be people who know how to stay centered in you, abide in you, focused on you, loving you. Lord, we need to be rescued. We need to be drawn. We need for you to, to, uh, to reach us. Lord, give us the courage to respond. Lord, where our hearts are full of anxiety, as we look at the world, I pray that as we shift our eyes from what's going on in the world to you and your power and the eternal nature of your kingdom, Lord, that we would know what real peace is. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.